The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave from Saunders Studio. Humans are being digitized, and we're on a mission to make that better. Better decisions, better problems, better design. We make this happen with our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age, our speaking and workshops, and our digital design work. Artificiality is one of our favorite things to do. For three weeks out of each month, you'll hear from us. We'll take a decision or problem in the public sphere and pick it apart. We'll talk about a decision nudge that we're using, and then we'll wrap up with something that's caught our attention and made us think. Once a month, we'll interview a great mind someone who works at the frontier of human or machine intelligence. Welcome back to Artificiality. Hello. Hi. So we're here to talk about the topic of the day, it seems, everywhere you look. Generative AI, ChatGPT, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, etc., etc. Bard. Bard, Correct. The integration of ChatGPT into Bing, it seems to be everywhere. All, all of a sudden, now everywhere you look, everybody's got their hands into something that's generating content without any, without, with very little prompting, with very little new human ideas. What do you think about all this? Well, first of all, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's important. It's real. It's not a, it's not a sort of passing fad. True. <laughs> um, I think it's a it is a, a different step to uh, have um, this type of interface with the internet, if you like. Um, and the more you play with it, the more you realize, the more you gain an intuition for its sort of various strengths and weaknesses. Um, I don't know how you've found that in your own pursuit, which is you know materially different from mine because we just sort of our brains operate differently. Um, but it gets pretty bland pretty quickly, and uh, which is interesting because it, it sort of reveals to you the sort of basic state of, of the knowledge, if you like. Um, and it takes a lot to, to get it to – it takes other steps to get it to do other things, and that, that is where the creativity comes in. You've got to think about the way you ask the question or what you're trying to do to – to um, to prompt it in different ways, and there's even a new word for it, you know, prompt engineering, where you <laughs> you get different results with different prompts, and um, and jailbreaking, which is the the uh, the process of of figuring out how to uh, break the rules that that have been set for its use by asking it uh, different questions in different ways. Yeah, I found it interesting. I found most success. Um when I'm pursuing something that's sort of bland and mundane, um, you know, getting a, a, a result from, 
from ChatGPT to write a proposal for a consulting project. Blah, blah, blah. Don't worry, ours are really lively and interesting. <laughs> but if you want a really bland one, it can come up with it. Um, if you ask it to write an essay, it follows the exact same structure that we were all taught in sort of, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade, you know, and in conclusion is the beginning of the ending of each paragraph. It's very a telltale sign that actually ChatGPT wrote it. Um, and the images tend to be ones that are either bland or um, uh, highly stylized in a particular way. So like um, we, we used one of the images out of um, Stable Diffusion that was a steampunk image on our latest ChatGPT blog post. And uh, steampunk is one of those sort of characterized almost, you know, sort of styles of illustration. And it seems to do a pretty good job with that. Um, it's terrible at understanding um, bodies, and and so you'll get a, you ask for things like um, asking for an image where someone's bending over and suddenly their feet are on backwards or their heads going out the wrong direction. Like it 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 doesn't understand the structures of bodies. Now some systems are better than others, um, and you start to get an understanding of where you get what kinds of answers from different places. Um, but it is difficult to figure out, you know. What the what the, in some ways it's 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 easy to come up with lots of great uses, but in other ways it's difficult to find what ones that you actually are proud of and that you actually really want to use. Yeah, it's um. I find that uh, the best way to think about it is the best way to think about is is going back to the basic principles of of all AI use. There's mm -hmm. nothing here that's that's really different um, in terms of thinking through those sort of pros and cons, if you like. Um, the, the underlying everything is still um, some kind of statistical processing. So there's still some kind of false positive and false negative, which accounts for you know, absurd answers sometimes um, and nonsensical or just completely wrong. And some of those are easy to spot, um, but others are not. And you can't spot what you're not offered. Mm. So there's a another level of, of your own thinking that has to be put across the top at the very basic, which we sort of call fact-checking. But it's beyond fact-checking because it's, it's, it's the fact in the context and it's what you're missing as well. So it's not just a straight, is this correct or not? Um, it, it's always, is this correct in the context and what am I missing? Yeah, I found two wonderful errors um, that stand out with uh, ChatGPT. Uh, one was that I asked it to write a biography of Bruce Springsteen. Being a kid from Jersey, I figured that would be easy for me to fact check. And uh, it returned that one of the lines is that Bruce has written two best-selling books, Born to Run and Springsteen on Broadway, which was really amusing because he's written one book called Born to Run. Springsteen on Broadway is not a book. So a pr what would be obvious to anyone who knows anything about Springsteen or anyone who's writing a biography just, just kind of looking through Wikipedia pages wouldn't have made that mistake. So clearly it's, you know, that's one of those standout errors that should remind everyone that you will always have to fact check ChatGPT. There will always be errors. That's part of what being a probabilistic system is. There'll never be a way to say, I can take this and know and think 100% that it's correct because that's what a machine gave me. And obviously the best reflection of this is what happened with Google and Bard releasing their system. Someone in their marketing department decided not to fact check it before they put it in an ad. And 
um, if somebody at Google can make that mistake, um, probably anybody can. The other great example is I asked it to write a summary of our book. And I said, please write a summary of the book, Make Bitter Decisions by Helen Edwards and Dave Edwards. And it started off with the book by these authors and wrote a nice long description of something that's not our book. And I, it took me a while to realize that ChatGPT's training apparently stopped at the end of 2021. So it doesn't even have, the, our book didn't exist until 2022, but it didn't say, I don't know what that book is. I haven't seen it before. I don't know anything about that book. I don't know who these authors are. It just wrote a description. Well, but it, it inferred. It inferred <laughs> a description of a thing that doesn't, when I was asking for a description of a thing that I know actually exists, it didn't tell me I'm giving you a description of something that's just an inference of something that might be something that could theoretically, I'm like telling you a story. It just, it didn't even tell me that. So that was, that was a, you know, you can't quite tell what it knows and it doesn't know because it's not actually telling you. It's giving you a sense of the, of the, of the history or the lineage of the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the traps of, of both of these are um, the, the kind of golden rule of AI design, which is really how do you design for failure? Hmm. And um, failure is, is glossed over. And failure becomes this um, almost squishy zone between the human mind and the machine mind. And um, humans are pretty happy to ignore it. And the machines have no ability not to ignore it. So it, it's, um, and it's, it's fine to say, well, all the responsibility is back on the user. And that's a lot of how the universities are handling it. You know, you, you're responsible for the errors. But um, it's a different kind of error than um, picking up the wrong book or um, uh, uh, interpreting um, a text incorrectly. It's a, it's a different kind of error when a machine makes it. And part of it's because you, uh, you're so much more subject to... Well, we don't really even know quite how automation bias works here. Mm. It's um, the, that, that desire that we all have for a one right answer um, can easily bleed into uh, a desire for not just the one right answer, but the one right action. And I think that that's where it, it sort of gets a little bit um, – it's much more problematic in companies for people to be thinking, well, I'll just turn this on and it'll it'll tell me everything I need to know. It's sort of the next layer of data-driven decision-making um, where the promise is, a, is one right answer, optimizable, not able to be found by humans, only able to be found by machines. It's, a, it's another step in this – AI journey that we've been living for a long time. Um, it's a pretty big step, but the way to pass it is to be able to go back to those core principles of, of AI. How does it fail and how does the human know and how do they take responsibility for that? How do they correct for that failure after they've detected it? What happens if they don't detect it? Um, and, uh, you know, what do you do about um, what is essentially some kind of automation bias? Um, the one where this, I think, is a little different, sort of on a next level, is, um, is attribution and ownership. And um, again, the university's handling this uh, and school districts handling it somewhere between a total ban, which is frankly just unrealistic, um, and, or 
a you have to cite your sources, and that's the problem, right? You can cite all day long that you use Chat GPT for something, but that doesn't tell you what Chat GPT cited, other than the sort of fuzzy corpus of the entire internet that we um, know based on our sort of third law of AI, which is um, the bias aspects and what what's represented and what's not represented in the data. And we just have so much less explainability. Um, we really need ChatGPT to have a metacognitive function where it explains exactly how it got there. And sometimes that's how this jailbreaking works, is getting it to explain the rules around its misuse and, and as, a, as a workaround. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to track how the next few weeks where, where the sort of – once the, the hype and the excitement has settled down into, okay, so this is what it really means. Yeah, I think your point about this, the next level of data-driven decision-making um, hits me um, – Right, sort of where I'm thinking right now. If I if I could if I could put up a big billboard to get the attention of every C-suite, it would be um, this is a bigger deal than um, thinking about how your employees are going to be using data, which we know a lot of companies basically kind of ignored. They thought building a data lake or a data warehouse or a data lake house or whatever they've got with all this information that suddenly people would be able to figure it out. They'd make some dashboards. And, you know, and they sort of assumed that people would know how to do and do stuff with all this data. And we found that that actually isn't true. It actually requires quite a lot of change management because digital transformation is actually about the people. You can digitize everything, but if the people don't know how to use it, they don't understand how they, they, they want to use it, what's going to be most effective, you'll never get the ROI, right? So we've seen all this data that comes out about how few digital transformation projects are actually successful. I think the number one reason is that people forget to think about the people. And this is going to be even harder because everything in it is AI generated, which we know has a whole bunch of new layers of, of challenge and, and, and conflict and consideration required. And without having a very um, focused change management program, you're going to have this thing kind of go wild in ways that you don't really understand. So I think about almost like generative AI is now a new research department, right? So imagine you just hired dozens or hundreds of people to be generating all kinds of new information and pushing it all throughout the organization. You'd be thinking about how do we integrate these people into our processes? How do we integrate this information? How are we going to use this in our marketing campaigns, our internal strategy projects, or however else our customer communications? You'd be working through that as a program. What I worry about is people are so enamored by how cool it is and they're just kind of excited for people to use it, especially because at the moment it's basically free, that they're not going to think about it until it's a little too late. And then you have the gaffes, like what's happened at Google. Then you have the issues of IP theft, which are slowly working through the legal system. Who really owns this stuff? Can you actually use these things? Where are there the lines there that you want to be really careful about? What kinds of what kind of processes do you need for your people to use these things? And um, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to have yet another generation of new technology being shoved into the enterprise where people are excited because of all the, the new whizzy tech, and then they're going to fall flat on their face because they haven't thought about it well enough. Well, yeah, we don't even know some of the holes we're going to fall into, which is actually one of the exciting things about this mm. um, because it is, it is that we've been talking for years about this 
um, emergence that happens with machines and humans interacting. Um, and the, and it's, it's happened everywhere. It's just that it isn't, it isn't really all that obvious. It hasn't really been all that obvious until these tools because it's the way we communicate visually or in language. It's not like most people haven't really realised the, the full significance of what DeepMind did with, the, with protein folding because they're not in that field. But um, we all speak and we all communicate with, with uh, images and so we can see how profound this is. We can feel it when we sit down and use these tools. Um, that that they're that they're fun. That they do allow you to create things that uh, you could, that used to be really hard work or beyond your uh, capabilities, and now they're just easy. Literally, sort of press of a button, which makes it exciting and makes it fun. But we don't even know yet the holes that um, people will fall into by. <clears throat> believing the first thing they read or acting on something. And the, the one you've mentioned about um, IP theft, uh, it, this is, there's a, the fact that, that it's trained on someone's creative work and then you use it puts this um, abstract layer between you and the sense that you're stealing. Mm. And um, that is, are extremely problematic and, you know, must be very concerning, <laughs> very frightening for people in the creative pursuit because we've, all, we've learned over the years that you, don't, you can't just appeal to old school values. You can't just say, well, you know, it's the humans who will do um, the human thing and will value that human touch. Um, there's nothing here that says that an artist is going to be valued because they've put a human touch of paint on something. There's absolutely nothing that says that. In fact, all of the history of the last five years would suggest completely the opposite. And it becomes a, a sort of creative free-for-all where um, the reward is that your particular creative thing, like a little video on TikTok or something, you get lucky and that goes viral. And that that goes viral because it's it's extreme and there's something about it that sort of hits a note and it's luck. That says and but now those things are done on the back of somebody else's uh, somebody else's creative work yeah. that they probably have a student loan for for how much they <laughs> for their training in that creativity. So I think it's um and you can't. I mean, you look at the, the it, it adds a, a, a definite layer, I think, to responsible AI if you're in a company that is it responsible to, um, you know, type in a, a prompt that allows you to create an image in the, the style of without that, that attribution, without that, um, uh, without money being, without them being paid. And um, that, that the horse is so bolted on this, I don't know how it ever we ever sort of claw back. But it's a it's a, a big step change in in um, what is essentially creative theft. Sure, and you know we we experience this. We have a book that you know NAI can digest once it gets trained on last year's books, and all of that information will somehow be put together. And everything we've ever published, whether it was on our own blogs or when we were writing at courts, you know, everything that we've done can now be ingested and reused. And even though all of those things are copyrighted, you know, we have the copyright from the U.S. Copyright Office for our book. 
that's not supposed to be repurposed beyond a certain, you know, there's, there's laws about how you can use copyrighted work, but the big tech world seems to just be able to skirt around it by basically saying, oh, well, yes, we're ingesting all of it, but the way we, the way we use it is different. Mm, you know? well, we're, we're special. We're special, yeah. But it does mean that the rest of us who've actually labored to create these things, it, it can definitely make you feel a lot less special or, um, or like more like your career is a bit in jeopardy because it just seems to be that once you put something out, everybody gets to reuse it. And there's there's something there that doesn't that's clearly wrong. Well, it goes back to the sort of that that departure that happened at the very start of the internet. You know, the information needs you know wants to be free. That didn't mean free as in zero (laughs) zero price. It meant free in terms of everyone being able to use it. And you know, attributing something that's gone through some form of neural network, which is now. 10x more complicated than it was mm. even 10 years ago, 100x, 1,000x, billions of parameters and different ways of processing. Um, there's no way that you can uh, have a line, realistically have some sort of line back. So we've got very blunt instruments for dealing with what is an extremely complicated situation. Yes. All right, you want to talk about a nudge that you're using this week? Well, the nudge I'm using this week flows distinctly off the back of all of this, which is um, Synthesize Later. And um, Synthesize Later is, I think, a, 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 a one of those nudges that you can take at sort of face value as in I'm, I'm just going to, you know, bring once I've defined my problem, done my analysis, I'm going to pull it, the analysis together and synthesize sort of an, over, an overarching um, conclusion, but we're talking here about a sort of very, you can take it right up to sort of high level synthesis where it, we're talking about um, how does, it, this is what AI still doesn't do very well is synthesize. It's what you're looking at when you do, when you look at chat GPT is, is a summary in natural language from the corpus of the internet with a bit of kind of putting together a few themes. And it's usually pretty sensical. But it's not the same as um, the synthesis that humans do when they come to the end of a problem or the, or the, the point of a decision where you're not just summarizing. You're not just um, uh, saying, well, I've kind of got to the end of what I can understand here. You're actually pulling together um, what other people think the different perspectives, as well as what the data says, as well as the synthesis of, of what you think the future is going to be like, which is what AI can't really tell you by definition. Um, and this, I think, this, this idea of synthesis as a human strength is something that won't be replaced by machines. I think focusing in, I've, I've felt um, much better about where the AI is going when I look at and what humans can do when I, when I think hard about um, getting better at synthesis and not just sort of skipping over that step. It's a very, it's something we need to learn to value. I like that one. So my uh, nudge at the moment is explain, teach, pitch. So this nudge um, is uh, inspired by Tanya Lombroso. And it's about how you generate more of your ideas through explaining, right? It's a generative act. Um, And there's three different levels. You're explaining something to someone that helps you understand what you're actually thinking. 
Um, you teach them, which means that you have to understand where they are. You know, so you have to understand uh, wh what they know and bridge that gap. And then pitch, you're actually trying to motivate them to do something about it. And I've been using this because we've been in the midst of doing a lot of content creation for various presentations and, and consulting projects. You know, we've looked at um, how, do you, uh, how, do you, how do you undertake change to um, prevent um, uh, runaway expenses and, or, or low ROI in digital transformation projects. We've looked at um, uh, teaching people about the basics of human-centered design and how you think about that inside of an organization. Um, we've been working on complexity and complex problem solving and how do you tackle those kinds of problems and we're working on generative AI and how do you think about that inside the enterprise. And all of those, there's a level explaining and there's a level of teaching um, that comes into that, which at times can be hard, but you don't really know enough about your audience to know what they know and they don't know. But uh, that nudge is really important. And at times we get to that pitch where we're actually making a pitch. You know, this is what we think you, know, you should be considering to do. So you sort of step through all three of those layers. So that's, that's been a really helpful nudge um, right now. That has certainly been your week. It has been my week. It has been my week. Excellent. Well, uh, any sources, new readings, ideas that you'd like to share with the audience, things that you've been, that you've been, that have been inspiring your mind to go were? Uh, well, I just finished a book uh, by Hannah Critchlow, who's a neuroscientist from the UK, uh, called Joined Up Thinking. And it's a great uh, summary of where our th um, the sort of state of the sciences around how we can... Um, build our intelligence collectively as humans. It goes really everywhere from some of the, the cultural things that we spend a lot of time talking about in our data-driven decision-making course. Um, in fact, every sort of page I turned, I went, oh, there's another one of, <laughs> of the things that we use, um, including uh, Joel Pearson and his work on intuition um, out of uh, Sydney and um, John Coates, who did the work on... Um, interoception and how traders on Wall Street makes make their calls, uh, right through to some of the f more advanced um, artificial intelligence systems or um, the neural link kind of um, neural lace, brain-to-brain uh, um, -brain type, body-to-brain, brain-to-brain, brain-to-computer type um, connections. But I found it a, a fascinating read and... Um, it, it's so many um, books that cross the psychology technology boundaries um, are very weighted towards the way that men have have thought about this world and have have um, studied um, status and intelligence from a and and teamwork from a sort of very male perspective and she really isn't like that. It's quite refreshing to have it so much more of a um, female bias in the way of thinking about how teams work. So I found it um, a, a delightful read, actually, and um, would, would highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, I just started a book, um, the newest book by Don Norman, which is not out yet, um, and I'm very excited um, I won't go into it too much because I will sneak preview. We will be interviewing Don Norman very soon um, and uh, about his new book. And so 
make sure to subscribe and make sure that you get an alert when that interview comes out in the next few weeks. But I'm very excited about this. I think I've read most, if not all, of his books in the past. Um, and his um, mindset and perspective continues to broaden ever from the beginning of design everything, you know, designing everyday things. Um, it's very much around, you know, individual um, ideas and products and affordances, you know, that, that, that whole structure that we've now used so much um, uh, to much more human-centered design and now larger and larger. And so he's thinking about much, much bigger topics um, than, than, in the, than in the past. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me on Artificiality. Um, and uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, and uh, we look forward to sharing our next exciting interview with you. Um, that'll be next week. So stay tuned for an interview with David Krakauer from the Santa Fe Institute. And uh, we'll be chatting with you again soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive reading or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone, on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore. Yeah.